I am particularly excited about this evening because the theme that we are looking at is Jesus as the new Moses. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm particularly excited about this week, and I have been since we, since we began the class, and I knew that we were going to be looking at this topic. Um, and one of the reasons that I'm excited about this is that when we look at Matthew's gospel, we can see that there are uh, explicit and subtle, or to put it a different way, there are direct and indirect ways that Matthew references the Old Testament. There are direct and indirect ways that Matthew weaves the Old Testament story throughout his gospel. So we see direct ways when he quotes the Old Testament and he says, this took place to fulfill what the prophet uh, or what the Lord spoke through the prophet saying, so on and so forth. Those are direct uh, ways that Matthew uses the Old Testament. But then there's something, uh, or there are ways that Matthew uses it much more indirectly, much more subtly, that's kind of just weaved into the very fabric of his story, of his gospel, of his writing. So when we look at something like the son of Abraham or the son of David, we read verse one in Matthew, and it says um, the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, um, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are very explicit, very specific titles that Matthew is using. Whereas when we come to Jesus as the new Moses, we never get anywhere in Matthew's gospel that says Jesus is the new Moses or Jesus did something just like Moses did it. But we don't get that um, explicitness that we get with something like the son of David or the son of Abraham themes. So when we look at Matthew's portrayal of Jesus, we can ask, um, what does Matthew say about him? So we can look at the titles that Matthew uses. Um, Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, Emmanuel, which we're going to be looking at next week. Son of man, one of Jesus's own favorite titles for himself. So there's uh, a way that we can look at Jesus as described through the titles that are attributed to him. But then we can also look at how something is described, how Matthew structures his story, uh, the people that he mentions, the places that he mentions, the actions of Jesus that he mentions. All of these kind of create an environment which is um, still soaked through with the Old Testament, but maybe a bit trickier for us to recognize on a surface reading or an, in, an initial reading of the text. I wonder if um, it's a bit like, um, a bit like with food. I tried to, to learn how to cook somewhat when I was about 18 years old um, and finishing up high school and um, the year after high, high school. And you tend to learn like as you start to learn how to cook that there are some recipes which are very long and there's about a thousand ingredients in them. And you ask the question, do I really need to go out and buy this, these 10 ingredients that I don't already have just to put a very small amount of spice or herbs into this dish? And so sometimes you may choose to decide, yep, you know what, this is worth it. I'm going to stick with the recipe. And other times, um, 
particularly if you have kids and you are busy, then you say, yeah, let's see how many ingredients I can cut out for it to still be edible. <laughs> and so uh, you may learn as you do this and as you try each approach, trying to stick with the recipe and, and trying to cut different things out, that um, when you cut out the extra spices, the extra herbs, you still have the bold, the main flavors. If you're making a curry, you still have the, the, the meat or the, the main part of the dish. And then you have maybe the, the main element in the sauce as well, whether it's a coconut flavor or, or tomato flavor. But then if you miss out on the spices and the herbs, then you do miss something. And you may not even quite notice what you're missing, but it really does take away from, from the dish. And I wonder if this is similar to how Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses. This theme really is there all throughout Matthew's gospel, and it's very important. But the way that he is structuring it is much more like the, the more subtle notes of spices and herbs in a main dish of, of other titles and themes that he is orchestrating. One way um, that we can talk about what he's doing here is with the term shadow stories which I read this week from a, a, an author called Patrick. And um, I like that term. I, I think it gets across the idea of what Matthew is looking at. These aren't um, out in the open with the daylight shining on them. These are shadow stories kind of working under, under the current of Matthew's story. Matthew invites us not just to look at how he's saying, Jesus, the new Moses, He's inviting us to actually compare the very lives of Jesus and Moses, the events and the actions and the environment that each of their lives um, were situated in, and to see the parallels that way. As we've seen over the past couple of weeks, the beginning is very important for Matthew. And so when we looked at son of Abraham and son of David, we began in Matthew chapter one, at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. And when we turn to the theme of the new Moses, it's not too different. When we turn to Matthew chapter two. Downstairs. I think we may have to mute some. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Here we go. So when we look at the theme of the new Moses, then we also look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. He brings in this theme, as we've said, not too directly, more indirectly, but still at the very beginning of his gospel. And so when we read Matthew chapter 2, we get this sense of deja vu. If we're familiar with the Old Testament, then there are some parallels that we may just kind of notice and may um, be rummaging around at the back of our mind um, while we read the story of Jesus' birth. Jerry, the first thing that you mentioned in regards to the events in Moses' life is we think of his birth. And what were the circumstances around Moses' birth? We can pinpoint them in a few different ways. We could say that uh, one of the most notable things about Moses' birth was that it was in the midst of an evil king slaughtering the uh, Israelite boys. Because the 
Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had become paranoid and scared of the Israelites. He had decided that he would actually execute many of the infant boys who were born. We can start to see the parallels with Jesus' own story, that in response to Herod finding out that um, the king of the Jews had been born, then he sends his soldiers in to kill all the boys uh, under two years old at Bethlehem. Or we think of uh, other parallels with both of these characters' births. Think of the theme of righteous refusal. In Moses' situation, the midwives, in uh, the Israelite midwives in Egypt, are told to execute the boys if, they, uh, if it's a boy that's born instead of a girl. And they righteously refuse to do that because they fear God rather than Pharaoh. And with Jesus, we think that uh, Herod told the Magi, the wise men, that when you find the child who's called King of the Jews, come back and tell me. And instead, the Magi choose not to do that because they're warned in a dream by an angel of the Lord uh, of Herod's um, devious evil plan. Or as you know to Jerry, divine preservation. Each of these children are divinely protected and preserved by the Lord God. We see um, an angel warning Joseph, uh, father of Jesus, warning him that he needs to flee uh, with his family to protect them. We see the divine action uh, of when Moses mother entrusts Moses to the river in a basket and she doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, she doesn't know what's going to happen even if she uh, thinks that she's heading him in the direction of Pharaoh's daughter. She doesn't know what Pharaoh's daughter will do when she comes across Moses. Um, but the Lord shows mercy and grace and Moses is raised and preserved. And then we also see the theme of fleeing and returning. These maybe aren't direct parallels with uh, each of their infancies, but Moses' life, he has to flee from Egypt uh, because everyone knows that he has killed a man, and then later on he is called to return by the Lord. Whereas Jesus has to flee because of uh, the danger when he's an infant, and then he's called to return after the death of, um, after the death of Herod, who was seeking his life. So the beginning of Matthew starts with just setting this um, in, in our minds that there are parallels between the beginning of Jesus and the beginning of Moses. Matthew's kind of just introducing this background theme of Jesus being a new Moses. And the theme of Jesus as a new Moses or the theme of there being such a thing as a new Moses finds its uh, source, its origin in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a specific passage where Moses is speaking and he says what the Lord has spoken to him and what the Israelites should expect in the future. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Later on, we're going to see an echo, a parallel of that phrase. It is to him you shall listen. And then later on in verse 18, it says again, I will raise up for them a prophet 
like you from among their brothers. So there is this expectation that Moses, the great prophet, there's actually another prophet, a singular prophet, not many prophets. There will be many prophets, but there is a singular prophet who is to come. Who is this new prophet going to be, this new prophet like Moses? And throughout the New Testament, and Matthew's gospel in particular, we see that there is this expectation um, of Jesus being this prophet, not just a prophet. There's some references to Jesus being a prophet. So we see in Matthew 13 um, that the people of his hometown take offense at him. And Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus is recognizing that, yes, uh, I am a prophet. That is one of my roles, one of my titles. Uh, later on in Matthew's gospel, the crowds as well, after the triumphal entry, say, this is the prophet, Jesus. So Jesus is a prophet. But in John, we see there was an expectation uh, throughout Judah at the time, throughout the Jews at that time, that there was not just going to be a prophet or many prophets, there was going to be a prophet with a capital P, a prophet like Moses, a prophet after the great Moses. So um, John chapter one, we have some of the uh, religious leaders asking John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he responds, I am not. And then they ask, are you the prophet? The prophet? You know the one we're talking about, the one from Deuteronomy chapter 18, the one that we're all expecting. Are you him? And John answers, no. Even though John was a prophet, as Jesus himself declares, John the Baptist was a prophet. He's not the prophet. I think before we jump into the question of uh, what exactly does it mean that Jesus is a prophet like Moses, then we have to ask ourselves, what does it actually mean that Jesus is a prophet? What does prophet mean? We tend to think of prophet, the role of prophet, and the activity of prophecy as being majorly future-oriented. And so someone who prophesies will be speaking about the future primarily. However, in scripture, that's not actually um, the case. There are situations where the prophets do speak about future times. Maybe it was future for them um, and actually has happened since their time and our time. Or maybe it's still future for us. But primarily, the prophet's role was as God's spokesperson. They said the things of the Lord. They were the mouthpiece of God. So you see this phrase again and again throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. This is what God says. I'm going to declare to you what God is saying to you. So when we look at Jesus as the new Moses, then this is one of the lenses by which we need to view him. So what exactly does it mean that Jesus is a prophet like Moses? We're going to look at three different titles or descriptions of Moses and Jesus that correlate with one another. We're going to look at him as a teacher, as a mediator, and as a redeemer. And for each of these three descriptions, we'll follow basically two paths. The first question we'll ask is, how is Jesus a teacher, mediator, redeemer, like Moses? 
what are the parallels? And then the second question we'll ask is, how is Jesus a greater teacher than Moses? How is Jesus a greater mediator than Moses? If you want to look at it uh, in a different way that more naturally fits with the title of our class, we're going to begin by looking at the old. What are the parallels that Jesus has with the old, with Moses? And then what are the new things that we see Jesus bringing out? How is he greater than Moses? How does he go beyond Moses's ministry? So let's begin by looking at Jesus as teacher. And how is Jesus a teacher like Moses? One of the main areas that I think you can see this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' most well-known, iconic speeches, teaching, um, discourses, where he sets forth the, um, the activities, the lifestyle that he expects his followers, followers of his kingdom to participate in. What does Jesus ex expect of us? How does he expect us to live? What are the, um, the things that characterize the kingdom of God? Jesus lays, lays this forth in the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of his manifesto, uh, as you go. And so in this discourse, we can see that at the very beginning, chapter five, verse one, we note a couple of parallels, a few echoes of Moses. We see the phrase, he went up the mountain. So this phrase, uh, as it is word for word, occurs only three times in a particular translation of the Old Testament. And every single one of those three times it refers to Moses going up the uh, Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord God. And so you see like in this phrase, Matthew's reminding us, be thinking of Moses here going up the mountain. And it's not just any mountain. It's not just a mountain. It is the mountain. Matthew's style uh, when he writes in his gospel is um, mountains are very important to him because theologically they're important in the Old Testament. Mountains are places of revelation where God uh, sets forth his, um, what he wants us to know. And it's a place of covenant as well. So mountains are important. So Matthew will reference mountains a number of times. Uh, but what he'll introduce them as is he'll say, uh, he'll specify which mountain it is. And then he'll say the mountain. However, this time he doesn't actually do that. He starts by saying the mountain. The implication is you should know which mountain I'm thinking of. There should be echoes of the, the mountain par excellence, the, the great mountain. When you think of mountains throughout all of scripture, which one are you thinking of? You're thinking of Sinai. Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God. And so we see some parallels there. Another way that we see parallels with Jesus' teacher, like Moses, is we mentioned during our first week that one way that you can look at Matthew's gospel is it's centered around five speeches, five discourses of Jesus. So you have uh, maybe a whole chapter or even several chapters of speech from Jesus teaching his disciples or various people. And there's been um, some scholarly work done on the parallel between there being five discourses, speeches in Matthew's gospel 
and there being five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, and the parallel that um, we see there. And maybe there, um, there's been some critiques about the how well they relate to one another, whether Jesus' first discourse really does parallel the first book of Moses, or whether it's just a more general parallel, five discourses and five books of Moses. Just another kind of hint from Matthew as he's weaving his story to say, be thinking about Jesus, Jesus being the new Moses, the teacher, the one who will teach us in the ways of the Lord. But how exactly is Jesus greater than Moses? He's a teacher, and we've seen a few parallels so far, but how does he go further than Moses? And one of the most important ways is his authority. At the end of Matthew's um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we get a glimpse into how Jesus is not just like Moses, but greater than Moses. After Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. When people listened to Jesus' teaching, the thing that set it apart was he was speaking with authority. When the prophets spoke, when Moses spoke, their authority was external. It came from outside of themselves. And so they would say, the Lord says, when Jesus speaks, and I encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount this week, then you'll notice his authority is not external, it's internal. He has authority in and of himself. He isn't deriving his authority from God. He has authority in himself. So instead of saying the Lord says, he says, I say to you, the teaching that Jesus offers grounds its authority within himself. He appeals to himself. It certainly has great implications for how Jesus is not just a teacher like Moses, but greater than Moses. One of the um, first things that Suzanne said in descriptions about Moses was that we think of Moses as the first one who introduced the law. And Matthew has a particular interest in his gospel with the topic of the law. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a tricky topic to wrap our minds around because there are certainly different biblical authors who approach the topic of the law differently from one another and are speaking in different situations. Matthew is writing a gospel. Uh, Paul, when he writes... Romans, he's writing to a specific church uh, and a specific situation. And so the topic of the law can get somewhat confusing. And Matthew is trying to clarify uh, what the Christian's perspective on the law should be by emphasizing Jesus' teaching on the law. Moses was a lawgiver. But what Jesus does is he centers the law on himself. He is the, the means by which we should understand the law. So there's a, a section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus specifically addresses the question of the law. And he says, 
do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what exactly is Jesus saying about the law? Is he saying that we should reject the law? You know, do away with it. It's okay, guys. I've come. Jesus is here. And now let's, you know, let's toss out this old law. This, this is useless. Who needs this now? Or is he saying the, the exact opposite? Is he saying, continue doing what you're doing at the moment. Uh, nothing's changed. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. So is he saying that we should reject the law? Is he saying we should affirm the law as it currently stands? And instead, he says something different. He says that he has come to fulfill the law. It's not come to reject it, not come to affirm it as it is, but he's come to fulfill it. And what that means is that the law continues to be valid as long as it is interpreted through Jesus' life and teaching. Jesus fulfills the law in two ways. The first is that he performs the law in a way that we never could. We always failed. We could never keep the law fully, perfectly, sinlessly, and yet Jesus did, and he fulfills the law that way. The second way he fulfills it is that he brings out the true intention of the law. Uh, we see this throughout um, the Sermon on the Mount in particular. Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he does is he clarifies what the intention of the law was. When the law was given, um, for example, do not murder, the intention was always for that to lead us to the point at which we say, and therefore, likewise, hatred is wrong. Just as murder is wrong, hating someone, murdering someone in our heart is wrong. And Jesus fulfills the law by bringing out the true intention. What the law was always pointing towards. The law does not and it cannot bring salvation. And we'll see that certainly something else is needed. But its purpose, as interpreted by Jesus, is to show us still how to live. But it must be interpreted through Jesus' life and teaching. There's a quote by, by Patrick Schreiner, which I think is a, a bit helpful. He says, the authority of the Old Testament law continues, but it does not function in the same way. We get the old and we get the new. The law hasn't been tossed out and done away with. But there is a new way which, to which we approach the law. And that new way is through Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfills the law in a way that we could not, Who's, um, who is the person through whom we interpret the law. So that's Jesus as a teacher, like and greater than Moses. The second description of Jesus that we're going to look at is as a mediator, mediator like Moses. A mediator is someone who comes together with two groups in order to bring them together. That's, that's the function of a mediator, a go-between. 
between two different groups. And so the necessity of a mediator between us and God is that we are sinful people and God is holy and righteous and just. And therefore we need someone to draw us into the presence of God. And so we see in uh, Exodus 24 and 34, there are um, some parallels between um, Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Moses going up the mountain. There's a guy called um, Charles Qualls, interesting name. And uh, I, I find it funny that his parents, his parents knew that their last name was Qualls and decided to, to still name him Charles. So um, hopefully that was uh, not in any way mean intentionally. And so what um, Qualls has done is he's gone through um, Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the law, to meet with the Lord and the transfiguration and notice a number, a significant number of parallels between each of these stories. So Matthew says that after a period of six days, then Jesus and three disciples go up onto the, the mountain and there he is transfigured before them. And it's the same with Moses. After a period of six days, he goes up on the mountain to meet with the Lord. Specifically, it's not just a mountain, it's a high mountain. When they're up on the mountain, a cloud descends and covers the mountain. A voice speaks from the cloud. The main character radiates the divine glory. They, they glow with the presence of God. Three individuals are specifically mentioned. Jesus takes up not just all of his 12 disciples, but specifically Peter, James, and John. In Exodus 24, um, says that Moses took up with him Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So there are three individuals in each case specifically pulled out to witness this event. And then lastly, the witnesses are struck with fear because of what they see, because of what they experience, they are struck with fear. And so these parallels just completely thread the whole way through uh, each of these passages. The transfiguration and Moses ascending to meet the Lord on the mountain. The point of Moses as mediator was that he was in the presence of God on behalf of the Israelites. That's what it means for Moses to be mediator. He was the one whom God called up the mountain to be in his presence. And then he would be given the laws and, 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 and go down and distribute that to the Israelites, to God's people. Moses was the mediator in the presence of God. He interceded on behalf of God's people. And so we see occasions where the Israelites sinned and Moses prays to God and asks him to not reject his people. He intercedes on behalf of them. But we also see in the transfiguration some hints, and, and not even just hints, but very uh, unsubtle, very explicit indications that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's not just another Moses of the same caliber, uh, or maybe slightly above. He's on a different level. 
the first way that we see this is in the very transformation of Jesus. Matthew 17 says, he was transfigured before his disciples and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. One of the strange and remarkable things in the story of Moses is that after he meets with the Lord, comes down the mountain and his face is glowing. His face is glowing because he's been in the presence of God. And yet the description we see of Moses' face glowing, and then he's actually, he's, he's even able to, to block out this glow by putting a veil over his face. This is completely different from the description we get of Jesus. Instead of Moses reflecting the, the glow of the glory of God, we see Jesus, his face shining like the sun, light emanating from him. He's not reflecting it, it's emanating from his very self. His clothes become not just bright, but white as light. If this demonstrates, um, or if the glow of Moses' face demonstrates the magnificence of him being in the presence of God, then how much more does it demonstrate Jesus as being in the very presence of God, being God himself uh, in flesh? The second indication that we get of Jesus as greater than Moses in the transfiguration is the words that are spoken in the cloud. The cloud descends and the Lord speaks in the cloud. And what exactly does he say? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 18 earlier. The Lord says that he will raise up a new prophet like Moses. And specifically, he says, you shall listen to him. This is a direct parallel with Deuteronomy 18. As Matthew is recording this event, what happened? He's trying to remind us, hey, I remember now. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that God says that the new prophet, the great prophet that he will raise up, that he should be listened to. And here he is again on the Mount of Transfiguration, speaking over his son, the one whom he loves, and saying, listen to him. You know, Moses um, was called a friend of God. In the scriptures, it says, Moses met with God face to face as with a friend. And yet Jesus is more than a friend to God. He is the beloved son of God, the beloved God, the son. He is very, in very nature, God. The, the relationship that he has with the father compared to the relationship that the father has had with Moses is incomparable eternally existent, eternally loving one another uh, as a triune family, eternally united. This is how Jesus can be our mediator. 
he's not just a human being. He's also a man as well. He's also God himself. He has a foot in both camps. How can he draw together holy God and sinful man? By being God, come in the likeness of man and drawing both together. Our third uh, description of Jesus that parallels Moses. Uh, our good friend, Charles Qualls, has a quote in his uh, book, which says that modern readers tend to think of Moses quite differently from the way Matthew's original readers view him. For them, he was a savior, a redeemer, and a deliverer. I know for myself that um, if I had been asked um, what kind of descriptions would I associate with Moses, the main things that would come up would be um, as lawgiver, as ruler. I wouldn't probably naturally think of savior, redeemer, and deliverer. But this is the language that the New Testament uses, the whole of scripture uses to describe Moses. So in um, Stephen, Stephen in the early church is before the Sanhedrin, the uh, ruling Jewish leaders. And he gives a, a long speech and he talks about all of Israel's history and how it culminates in Jesus Christ. And during this great speech, he says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they do not understand. So Stephen associates Moses and salvation. The Lord was the one who performed salvation, but he did it through Moses. And later on in his speech, he also says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush so moses is a savior he's a redeemer and this is the third parallel we're going to look at in moses and jesus lives that of redeemer so how is jesus a redeemer like moses well what does a redeemer do a redeemer is someone who liberates others from oppression we see that that was the calling that Moses was given by God. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, led him or led them out of slavery, out of physical slavery and uh, imprisonment in um, the land of Egypt. And so both Moses and Jesus are those to lead God's people out of slavery. I wonder if you ever, ever thought about the, um, the meaning of different names or well, the meaning of Jesus' name. Uh, if you didn't know uh, yet, the Old Testament, as we have it, is primarily written in the Hebrew language. That's what it was composed in, first written in, in the first place. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And so in the Old Testament, we have Jesus's name in Hebrew, which is Yeshua. You can see uh, on the screen, it may look like gobbledygook to you, but uh, you can see some Hebrew letters and then underneath it, you can see some, some Greek letters. And to the right-hand side, you can see uh, how it's kind of pronounced in English. And so in Hebrew, you have the name Yeshua. 
And that's Jesus' name, but it's, in the New Testament, it is Jesus, uh, which is um, how we say Jesus. It's the same name as Joshua. It's actually in both uh, Hebrew and Greek. The name is the same. It's Joshua. It's interesting that Moses' successor is called Joshua, and Jesus, the new Moses, is also called Joshua. Interesting parallel there. But what's particularly interesting is what the name itself means. It comes from a word in Hebrew meaning to deliver, to save, or to rescue. That's the meaning that the name comes from. We even see this at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Um, Mary is told by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall or he will save his people. Not being native Hebrew speakers, uh, then we probably miss the allusion there. But Matthew is expecting his readers to remember that the name Jesus or Joshua in Hebrew is related to the word meaning to, to save. So when he says his name will be Jesus, or he will save his people, he's saying, this Jesus, his actions are going to be like his name. He is one who has come to save. He is one who has come to redeem. But again, we see that Jesus is not just like Moses as a redeemer. He is a much, much greater redeemer than Moses. I actually cut the quotation of Matthew 1, 21 a little bit short. And how it ends is it says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Moses was saving the Israelites, God's people, from physical slavery. The new Moses has come to save his people from their sins. The slavery, the bondage, of their own unrighteousness and sinfulness. Jesus has come to lead people into a new exodus. The exodus, the, um, the movement out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery into the promised land. Jesus has come to perform a new exodus out of the, the land, the sphere of slavery into freedom into a new promised land. And there are several ways that the way that Jesus leads this new exodus is much better than the first exodus. For one, it is an exodus for all peoples. The first exodus was for the Israelites. This exodus, as we've seen, particularly during session one, uh, with the theme son of Abraham, is that God has come to save all people. Jews and Gentiles, young and old, the whole people, all peoples of the earth. Secondly, this new exodus is from a greater slavery. The first exodus was saving the Israelites from physical slavery, hard labor of bondage in Egypt. This is slavery from their own unrighteousness, their own sinfulness. Once the Israelites were saved from slavery, they were still enslaved in a deeper sense. They were still enslaved in their own sin. 
the new Moses the, brings a new exodus that frees us from a greater slavery. And with it, he brings a permanent solution. You read the story of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, and um, you'll notice that everything isn't just great after they come out of Egypt. There are many trials and errors that they go through, and there is a number of times that that God disciplines and judges his people. Uh, We think in particular of the exile. Hundreds of years later, after they come out of Exodus, God allows the Israelites to be defeated by their enemies and driven into foreign nations. However, this new exodus is a permanent solution. Nothing can backtrack the solution of this new exodus. And finally, this new exodus is performed through a more costly sacrifice. Moses lived a life of great sacrifice. He had to be patient. He had to listen to the Israelites whining. He had to wander through the wilderness with them for many years. He had to sacrifice a great deal to be obedient to God. However, the new Moses gave up his very life. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave up more than we could ever have asked or imagined. The way that Jesus saves and redeems people is through his death. Such a backwards way of looking at things that through his death, he brings life. We see, um, we see this in the Passover as Jesus at the Passover, in the, that great remembrance, that celebration of that time that, that God passed over the Israelites um, because of the blood, on the, la- uh, the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts, that the Lord made a way for them to be able to be freed from Egypt. At, at that celebration of that meal, that's when Jesus decides to say, You know what? When we think about the Passover, when we think about when our ancestors were enslaved, that's the picture I want you to have of my death that's just about to happen. In the same way that lambs were were killed and the Israelite people were protected by the blood of the lamb, now they are protected in an even greater sense. Forever. No more sacrifices are needed because of the blood of the lamb of God. to recap the three points that we've looked at and try to summarize these in in short bullet point form. We've seen that Jesus as the new Moses is our teacher. He fulfills the law and teaches us how to truly obey the law. He's also our mediator and he stands in the presence of the father on our behalf. And he is also our redeemer. Jesus saves us from our sin through his blood by being the great lamb of God. I just want to draw your attention to a few points of application and maybe think about these um, as you go throughout the week. Um, just want to remind you of the, the quote from J.I. Packer that I began this class with a couple of weeks ago. 
which is that the purpose of theology is doxology. The purpose of learning about God, of studying the things of God, is about worship of God. And I think that this theme of Jesus, the new Moses, gives us great cause for worship. It helps us to ask some hard questions. Helps us to ask, who are we listening to? If Jesus is our teacher, who are we learning from? Are we more shaped by our culture, by TV, by film, by music, by books? Or are we more shaped by the teaching of Jesus? But then it also gives us peace. Jesus stands between us and the Father, leading us into his presence. Moses was a friend of God. Jesus is the son of God. Moses worked as a mediator, bringing the Israelites into the presence of God. Jesus can bring us into the presence of God eternally. Covers over all of our sins. I think through this, we are encouraged to trust in Jesus more. It's through his blood that we are set free. Through his sacrifice that we are able to be led on this new exodus. This final exodus. This great exodus that history has been leading towards, that God has been working towards since the very beginning. And I think... That's very good news. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we have explored your servant, disciple, Matthew's um, account of your life and of your teaching, we've encountered a number of different descriptions that he has of you. We encounter those that are more clear and those that are less clear and more subtle. And we're reminded of how beautifully um, you have constructed these Gospels um, as works of literature on themse in themselves. But not just that, Lord, because these aren't novels. These aren't just um, nicely written stories. Instead, they are history. They tell us how you have been at work uh, in the world. They tell us the story of redemption. They tell us the story of salvation. And we know that you are at work in this world right now, Jesus, that you are reigning and ruling on your throne. We ask that you would help us to learn from you as our great teacher. To have peace knowing that you are our great mediator. We don't need to rely on our own works. We don't need to rely on our own righteousness. We thank you that you are our redeemer. That your blood, your sacrifice covers our sin. So we thank you, Jesus. We ask that you would help us remember this throughout the week as we have different things come up. Um, I, I ask for those who have joined this class tonight, that whether they have... Um, trials, temptations, joyous times, confusing times throughout this week, they would hold on to you as their teacher, mediator, and redeemer. Amen.